So first off, uh, before I even do the reading, I just want to say it's a real honor and privilege to be with you here. Uh, I've never been to this congregation, to this building, and so it's just a, uh, this is a gorgeous uh, and historic site that you all have. And whoever did the plannings around here and out there, uh, I want to meet because I want to find out what they are. <laughs> Cigar is, is it? Oh, oh, you're kidding me. Okay. I know Natalie. Okay. Um, just gorgeous out, out front. And also I just want to say that I, uh, it's also a real treat because Phyllis and John are out in Cumberland this morning uh, doing a service there where I'm a consulting minister. And um, I know them. Uh, I mean, I live in the Baltimore area, so I know them from when they were at first UU in Baltimore, and I've followed them down to uh, – Norfolk, where they were ministers of the first UU congregation that I know of that's had to move because of um, uh, sea level rise. They kept getting flooded out. Uh, the Norfolk congregation is moving. Um, but, I, uh, but John and Phyllis are, are special to me. And so this is a little bit like a uh, pulpit exchange, which used to be pretty common back in the early churches up in New England. I just A little side story, I just got to tell you this, but Lyman Beecher, who is Harriet Ward Beecher Stowe's father or maybe grandfather, my, my, uh, I'm not exactly sure on that, but he was one of the more progressive Puritan ministers of his day. This is before the Unitarians got kicked out. And... Um, uh, he did a pulpit exchange with a more conservative uh, preacher in the next town over. So Sunday morning, they meet uh, on their horses, going to each other's uh, congregation. And uh, the more conservative minister could not help getting in a dig uh, at uh, Lyman Beecher because the more conservative Puritans, as you know, believed in predestination, that God set everything out at the beginning of creation and we've just been following it out. We really don't have much free will to change it at all. And Beecher didn't. Beecher thought that we have a lot to say in what happens. So the, the, the other minister, uh, as they're going by, the other minister says, so Lyman, I guess this was established by God at the foundations of the earth, huh? And, uh, you know, definite barb coming at him. Beecher, his horse goes on a little way, and he stops his horse, and he says, no, it was not. And he turns his horse around and goes back to his own congregation. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, this is in the spirit of um, uh, a better spirit of, 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 of exchange. Um, what, what I uh, the reading is is from actually it was eighteen it was eighteen fifty not eighteen fifty two as I put in there, but this is Theodore Parker uh, speaking in anti slavery uh, convention in New England. And by the way, if you all want to read one book on uh, that whole time in Boston where UUs were thick as thieves and stuff was exciting and going on, uh, there, Henry Steele Cominger, uh, or Cominger, I always, C-O-M-M-A-G-E-R, the dean, one-time dean of American historians, wrote a book. It's the only book he ever wrote on one person. It's called Theodore Parker. Yankee Crusader. You can get it for a buck fifty in old paperback. I mean, it's it's out of print now, but you can get it cheap. And he loves he loves Theodore Parker, and he loves the early uh, the Transcendentalists and the Unitarian Universalists at that time. And this is history the way it should be written. It is a it's a glorious story. Uh, so I just Theodore Parker, Yankee Crusader. You can get it cheap. But here's what Theodore Parker uh, said at this convention.
There is what I call the American idea. I so name it because it seems to me to lie at the basis of all our truly original, distinctive, and American institutions. It is itself a complex idea composed of three subordinate and more simple ideas, namely the idea, and I'm, I'm making this gender inclusive because Parker would have, you know, he was praying to mother, father, God back in 1830 in Boston. He would have made a gender inclusive day, okay? The idea that all people have unalienable rights, that in respect thereof, all people are created equal, and that the government is to be established and sustained for the purpose of giving every person an opportunity for the enjoyment and development of all these unalienable rights. This idea demands, as the proximate organization thereof, a democracy, that is, a government of all the people, by all the people, for all the people. Of course, a government after the principles of eternal justice, the unchanging law of God. For shortness' sake, I will call it the idea of freedom. Now, I saw a couple of you wondering, because if you grew up like I did, all of us thought that Abraham Lincoln came up a government of, by, and for the people, right, in Gettysburg Address? No. Abraham Lincoln edited it down. And uh, this is just my speculation, but I'm, he left the all out in Gettysburg. Now, we all know he was editing things like crazy for that short speech. But he was also speaking right after the Civil War, where untold numbers of Americans had died over this question of just who had the rights of citizenship and who government was supposed to be for, right? So to put in that, that radical all of Parker's in there would have taken away from the people he was trying to consecrate and would have opened up this whole question of what are we going to do with the slaves? You know. Anyway, I, I, I think that's maybe why Lincoln left it out. But the reason he knew that phrase in its original form from Parker was because his law partner out in Springfield, Illinois, William Herndon, was getting Parker's uh, sermons sent to him. Uh, I, I don't know how often it was, every month, every two months, whatever, but Theodore Parker, uh, his, uh, his sermons were sent all over. Uh, the the planet. And so Abraham Lincoln, this, this lawyer off in Springfield, Illinois, is reading Theodore Parker and was struck by that idea of democracy. Now, we all know that Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, in that shortened version, sent that idea out around the world, and it now is the standard definition of democracy that so many people know. I mean, you may not know anything else about democracy, but you know something of, of, by, and for the people. And Parker said most clearly, why democratic process in our congregations and in society at large, one of our principles after all, is essential to our faith tradition, one of its main principles, for it springs from the recognition of the inherent worth and dignity of every human being and their ensuing unalienable rights. But democratic process takes that universal dignity and makes it real, gives it a process to make itself politically viable and incarnate. 
Without democratic process, inherent worth and dignity, which we all love to talk about, is really just a slogan. It's some nice words with no chance of raising up a community to count upon, to listen to, and to effectuate that worth and dignity. So democratic process is not a political issue foremost. Rather, it is a spiritual one, one of faith, one at the heart of our religious tradition, as well as one at the heart of our civil society. And it leads inevitably to government of all the people, by all the people, and for all the people. Now, of course, that's not what we get, since there are also a lot of people who don't really want such a thing. Some believe in elitism, such as Ayn Rand's followers, where it's me, myself, and I, uber, uber alles. The widening wealth gap in this country has exacerbated the distorting influence of money on our political process. We have these huge influential entities that our founders never foresaw in their deliberations, these things called corporations, that amass monetary influence far beyond the means of any of us, although the widening wealth gap in our country has also brought us now super-rich individuals as well. But nevertheless, democracy is the central idea of this country, as well as a central part of our particular faith tradition. And by the way, just if there are, if anybody's new here, I just want to say my job is to speak the truth as I see it as best I can. And I'm going to be semi-blunt, uh, I'm going to be blunt today later on. Uh, uh, my job is to speak the truth as I see it, and your job is to speak the truth as, as you see it. But so with that inheritance behind us and around us, we meet what I and many others consider the greatest moral issue of our time, a challenge such as humanity has never faced, ever, in its 5,000 years or so of civilized development. And then I talk about the climate crisis. Of course, we all uh, do not agree on all particulars, but we surely need, surely need to be researching and talking together about what we think our situation is and how we propose to meet it. I can only speak for myself from what I've learned and hold to be most important. And I look forward to hearing what you've learned and hold to be most important. And I will almost bypass most of the sobering news about increasingly strong weather front. This is, you know, I'm not going to talk about, and then you mention what you're not going to talk about, but I'm just going to go through this quickly. Uh, increasingly strong weather fronts and hence storms, more severe, and I lost a 200-year-old white oak tree outside my house a couple years ago to one of these strong fronts. It's still is my heart broken. More severe droughts and flooding with their effects on farm yields and hence food security. By the way, the uh, uh, military analyst in Canada says what we don't realize is the first, the first uh, victim of climate change is food, and that's what makes it real important to us. The temporary masking of greenhouse gas effects by the absorption of CO2 by the oceans. Temporarily heating the oceans instead of us, but unfortunately at the same time making them more acidic and thus imperiling the entire life and hence food chain in them. The security threats of climate migrations, ethnic and other wars over diminishing resources, which by the way the Pentagon is gearing up for big time. The huge public health effects of the spread of tropical diseases, increased asthma and heat related deaths and on. Financial insecurity brought on by disrupted supply lines, budget strains from coping with climate change. We can't even get New Orleans back on its feet. Uh, Anyway, economic volatility from new risks, and by the way, two years before Syria collapsed into uh, strife, the Syrian government actually pleaded, wrote a pleading letter to the United Nations saying our farmers can no longer farm here 
and hunger is going to be a huge issue. Help us. They didn't get the help. I don't know if that's all that was going on. God knows the Assad regime is, is, is not great, but climate change is behind. My, I got arrested way back when uh, as our UU uh, delegate, uh, seven representatives in the House and a bunch of religious leaders, and uh, I got a call from the service committee. We say, we need a UU to get arrested, and I, so I said, okay, I'll do it. But it was about Darfur. When we, thought, when we thought we were talking genocide, Darfur was, was a climate war. It, it was ethnic groups fighting over desertification, diminishing resources. We didn't realize it then, but, and I thought I was getting arrested over genocide. It was over a, a climate war. The devastation wrought by increasingly extreme methods of extraction of fossil fuels, such as mountaintop removal, deep water drilling, and fracking, the danger of passing tipping points, such as methane released from the Arctic Oceans and tundra, which is going on now, and uh, we, all we can hope is that it doesn't spread too much more, which would take all control of what is happening out of our hands, and so on. Methane's about, well, it depends on how you calculate it, somewhere between 20 and 200 times more powerful than CO2 is a warming thing. It's shorter-lived, but it's much more powerful. And we are now currently headed for 3 degrees Celsius, and you can almost double that for Fahrenheit, rise by 2100, which is huge, since what we've already seen so far in changed climate, although mass, as I mentioned before, by the oceans, is all from 0.8 degrees Celsius rise from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution until now. And we're also currently headed, well, it, at least to a three to six foot sea level rise by 2100. And you can guess what that will do to downtown DC, New York, Eastern Shore, Maryland, Florida, et cetera, especially with storm surges. And especially since most of humanity lives right at sea level. But I wanna talk about a huge fact that I find only rarely included in our talk about this situation. And it is this, we can only burn up somewhere between a fifth and a third, 20 to 33 percent or so, of the already known fossil reserves of gas, oil, and coal before we reach the two degrees Celsius warming, which all the nations of the earth have agreed upon at Copenhagen as being the upper limit of what we can reasonably bear without catastrophic consequences. And even uh, that two percent, I think that puts us at about 440 parts per million of CO2. Bill McKibben, uh, Jim Hansen, the head of NASA, uh, research on this, says 350 is really the tops. We've already passed that. We're already at 400. Uh, but uh, uh, we're, we're, we're just shooting uh, by things. But, and even at that uh, Copenhagen level, Desmond Tutu, after that conference, begged, begged the developing countries of the world to lower that because he said that we were consigning Africa to a living hell, which we are. Africa, for some reason, gets hit because of ocean currents, et cetera, gets hit really hard. Well, we know the amount of CO2 put up since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution to achieve the 0.8 degree rise, so we can calculate how much more we can put up to get to the 2 degree or whatever. Carbon Tracker did the initial estimates, followed by the International Energy Agency, and then the World Bank, through its former chief financial officer, Lord Stern, in a report bearing his name, and now others like Standard & Poor's and another of, of uh, really top-notch, number-crunching uh, organizations have all confirmed, uh, with slight variations, this, this fact. A fifth 
to a third of the known resource, known assets in the ground can be burned. And if we go past that, we fry the planet. Now, mind you, this is known reserves, and it's not even counting the expiration. New, new reserves are still going on uh, apace. Uh, we're all financing it with our write-offs. And the importance of this fact, and here's where I, uh, uh, the importance of this fact is that the largest corporations in the history of the planet, the fossil fuel corporations, are headed toward a huge collision with the unanimous will of the world's governments. The great majority of the financial assets currently underground will have to be abandoned if we are to preserve the planet anywhere near the climate conditions upon in which civilization arose. And that huge percentage of gas Keeps their stock prices high. Any of us invested in uh, fossil fuels is one of the reasons we get good dividends on them. Based upon their past actions, it's hard to be optimistic about how these huge corporations will react. So far, they've invested billions of dollars, literally, in a public disinformation campaign modeled on the tactics of the tobacco industry decades ago, casting doubt on the science of climate change, claiming there is more disagreement than there actually is among scientists, etc. In fact, they've largely used the same advertising agencies, the same public relations specialists, the same lawyers. the downstream results of CO2 waste going into the air. Those costs are being borne in huge ways by the public and will be borne even more uh, hugely by our children and grandchildren. And again, it is the most vulnerable people, like communities of color, like the people who built this church, bear the gravest consequences from increased asthma, cancer, to a whole slew of public health issues, let alone flooding and uh, starvation. The analogy is uh, if a restaurant wants to do business, it has to have a dumpster to put its garbage in. But the fossil fuel companies uh, have not even bothered, have done away with dumpsters. The increasing realization of the risk of stranded assets, otherwise known as a carbon bubble like the IT bubble or the housing bubble before, in other words, the prices are way overvalued, is beginning to have an effect. You may have seen recently the agreement of ExxonMobil to greater transparency in its assessments of this risk. Maybe good PR or simple benevolence, but perhaps that was also driven by the risk of shareholder class action lawsuits. Since any company has a legal responsibility to report known risks to its shareholders. And the tobacco companies got in big trouble when they were found out to have been lying to the public and to their investors for years about the risks of cancer. They can be sued. Of course, I don't know about motivations, but I do know that right now there is a huge sea change going on in the financial community based not on climate change morality, nothing about ethics, but simply on fiduciary responsibility of investment advisors to let their clients know about that risk of stranded assets. And the divestment reinvestment movement, which you know was passed this last GA, 
at, um, well, at RGA, the, the UCC has done that. The Presbyterians are considering that in the process of doing that. Large number of universities have done that. And uh, most recently, the Rockefeller Foundation, which began with John D. and Standard Oil, has divested from those uh, from fossil fuels. And for these smaller folk who don't have huge portfolios, there is a uh, corollary called mom and pop, move our money and protect our planet. And uh, there are now more and more mutual funds that are doing, uh, doing this, Trillium Assets is doing this. Uh, more and more there are funds that are excluding fossil fuel investments. However you phrase it, the central moral point is this. It is immoral to profit from the destruction of the planet. It's simply immoral to profit from the destruction of the planet. Now, of course, there's the hope that the fossil fuel corporations steer themselves to becoming truly energy uh, corporations and investing in renewable energy instead of extreme fossil fuel extraction methods as currently. And it's true that Ma Bell left huge amounts of its assets stranded. I don't know the exact percentage, but it was a huge amount of their assets stranded when it went from old landlines to new digitalized and satellite technologies. They didn't want to do it, but they had to keep up with it. They had to strand, you know, billions of dollars. So it's not impossible for companies to make this decision to strand assets and move forward to a new future. It's not impossible. But on this one, what does seem clear to me is that this change will only happen it's only going to happen when we this is where democracy counts and this is where all of us come in because this is our future after all that we're talking about our children grandchildren all the other children and grandchildren of the earth all the poor and most dispossessed, all the other species, all the future generations. As you remember, Jesus at one point talked about the least of these as having the greatest ethical right to decent treatment, the most vulnerable. You may have heard of the recent study commissioned by NASA which looked at the effects of environmentally unsustainable practices and the resulting degradation and, and the resulting degradation on the downfall of historic empires. And it's true that almost every uh, major empire in Earth's history has followed an historical tra trajectory from Mesopotamia on. There's an overreach for wealth and the resulting passing of sustainable ecological limits. You cut down all the trees, you do whatever you do, you, you don't stop, you keep going past the ecological limits. Together, and they can't explain exactly why this is, but at the same time, there's a concomitant widening economic gap between the elites and the commoners, exactly like we're seeing in this country right now. And uh, let me... You can look it up. Uh, the economic uh, uh, widening of that gap is is rampant in our culture right now. So these two things go on, passing ecological limits and widening economic gap. But the elites then are, because of their great resources, are protected for a while by those resources 
And so they continuously, continue to semi-obliviously go on with business as usual, while the commoners and while the environmental systems go down the tubes, leading, of course, to eventually the elites themselves going down as well. And thus have entered a long string of major civilizations. And we, my friends, have to be democratically smarter today than these old empires. And there is no reason to believe that we cannot be given full, vigorous, sustained democratic participation. Study after study reveals we already have the needed technologies and science, though, of course, a more level energy field will spur even more major innovation. There are lots of ideas waiting in the wings, but they can't get funding because of the subsidies we're given fossils. What we lack is will for public policy of, by, and for all the people. That's what's lacking. Take one very hopeful development in our political sphere. I, like many others, have pretty much given up on Congress, given the huge contributions of fossil fuel corporations to incumbents. But after the demise of cap and trade several years ago, there is now a real possibility. It's called fee and dividend. It was put into Congress by uh, Chris Van Holland, our, Senate, our uh, congressperson from Montgomery County. And it even passes, it even passes Grover Norquist's test of no new government increase. It's backed by Jim Hansen, Citizens Climate Lobby, Chesapeake Climate Action Network, all, all kinds of uh, groups. Where it's taken out of the ground, it's a fee. And then it lets the market pass on the increased cost of energies on down. So it's market driven. And uh, so it's very simple. It's very simple. You don't have to, you know, instead of a couple thousand pages, it's about 100 pages. The fees collected are then given back as an equal dividend to every U.S. citizen. Everybody gets the dividend back equally. None of it goes to the government. It all comes back to us. So the most people come out ahead on covering their energy costs, but the real uh, squanderers, the guzzlers and uh, eight eight house owners and uh, yacht owners, et cetera, they're going to pay more, as they well can. So the whole, and the whole program is introduced gradually so as not to shock the economy. Every serious analyst of our climate situations says we simply have to have a price on carbon. We just got to. Beyond this public policy issue, communities all over are finding increased ways to meet what is going on, to become more of a local community with food production, energy production, viable future. Uh, I'm now, I've got solar on my house, but uh, I'm thinking of getting some, a pull thing because Interfaith Power and Light is forming solar co-ops where you buy in bulk. until 2016 when it probably won't continue and then if you go into a co-op you get an even further drop-off. Uh, Natalie tells me that uh, you've got something similar to this here so I'm on Dash who's an economic risk management professional. professional put climate change in 10 words. It's real, it's now, scientists agree, it's bad, there's hope. But the hope does not reside out there somewhere it resides in us here, making full use 
of the magnificent heritage that we have had placed in our laps by our religious forebears and others, a veneration of government of, by, and for all the people. And we are the ones who must make that ideal real now because there has never been a more urgent time for it.